Welcome to Lincoln Log, where we speak with leading historians and other officials about their stories, research, and wisdom. Expand your knowledge and indulge your curiosity here on Lincoln Log. This podcast is produced by the Abraham Lincoln Association, aiding and promoting Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy. Founded in 1908, the ALA remains the nation's oldest and largest Lincoln organization. Learn more at abrahamlincolnassociation.org. Greetings. I am your host, Joshua Claiborne, and I am pleased to welcome Jim Oakes to our Lincoln Log podcast. Jim is a distinguished professor of history and graduate school humanities professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, where he teaches history courses on the American Civil War and Reconstruction, slavery, the Old South, abolitionism, and U.S. and world history. He taught previously at Princeton University and Northwestern University. His most recent book, The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution, explores the guiding principles of Lincoln's anti-slavery strategies. Kirkus Reviews calls it one of the 10 nonfiction books to look for in 2021. Jim, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. You're obviously an expert on the Civil War and abolitionism. So what sticks out to you as something you learned in the course of writing this book and publishing it about these topics? Well, I started out a long time ago as a believer that in William Lloyd Garrison's critique of the Constitution, I published an essay many years ago in a law review that uh, took the Garrisonian position that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document and that the founders had shamefully compromised with uh, with uh, slavery mm-hmm. and didn't need to do so. Uh, then I started studying anti-slavery politics, beginning with a book on Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Um, was surprised primarily by Frederick Douglass's turn against uh, against Garrison, and it involved a turn against Garrison's interpretation of the Constitution. It's not that I believed it at the time, but I thought that's awfully interesting that he would that a radical abolitionist took this position that he took a position based on his conversations with other radical abolitionists. And uh, from there it began to snowball. I began I began work on a big book on emancipation during the Civil War, in which I discovered that people uh, who, uh, in Congress, Republicans in Congress, came into the war with certain premises about what Congress could and couldn't do, what the president could and couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And the more I looked into it, the more it seemed to me that every argument that was being made between the secessionists and the Republicans was a constitutional argument, and that the constitutional argument the Republicans were making presupposed that the Constitution was an anti-slavery document. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if that's the case, then the kind of originalist interpretation that Garrison was positing, that is, there is a text, the text is pro-slavery, they made these compromises, that's all there is to it didn't make much sense if it turned out that most of the people who were opposed to slavery, in fact, the overwhelming majority of people who were opposed to slavery, didn't think that way about the Constitution and thought something very differently about the Constitution. <clears throat> so 
I started studying anti-slavery constitutionalism and I went back, I taught a couple of seminars on anti-slavery constitutionalism and I had written an essay on Lincoln and the origins of the 13th amendment. My editor saw it and said, why don't you turn it into a book, a short book. And I was at the time teaching uh, graduate seminars on anti-slavery constitution going through mountains of documents. Uh, and I thought the way to turn it into a book is to show that the premises Lincoln brought to his approach to slavery as president were grounded in a long developed constitutional tradition mm -hmm. uh, that was much more sophisticated and much more complex than I think we have ever realized. I don't think there's too many historians who even the most diligent Lincoln scholars haven't haven't fully uncovered this this history of the of the Constitution this mm -hmm. version well if we could touch a bit on that history so obviously in 1788 <clears throat> when the Constitution was adopted we had 13 American states and all permitted slavery but the Constitution touted the blessings of liberty uh, banned slavery from American territories and empowered the federal government to ban importation of slaves in 1808 which it did that year, what, what caused, uh, and we can uh, assume you'll talk about the constitutional implications, but what caused such a delay in realizing the full blessings of that liberty that's touted in the Constitution? Well, let me, uh, let me be a little, uh, uh, offer a little bit of clarification about what the Constitution does. Sure. It, it, it is a compromise between the delegates who came to Philadelphia in the summer of 1787 um, from slave states and from states that were in the process of abolishing slavery. And so we know some of the most notorious of those compromises, the three-fifths compromise, which gave the slave states three-fifths, you know, counted the population of the slave states, mm -hmm. three-fifths of the population for purposes of representation in the House of Representatives and the Electoral College. So it gives the it gives the slave states a, extra power in the federal government. And that's going to be the answer to your question, ultimately. Right. Um, but it also had a fugitive slave clause that wasn't in the Articles of Confederation. Um, the fugitive slave clause was intrinsically ambiguous, but it nevertheless clearly gave the slaveholders a right to recapture their fugitive slaves in states where slavery was abolished or was being abolished. So those, those are clearly the basis of the kind of of the pro-slavery constitution, if you will. Now, pro-slavery theorists and politicians and writers pushed much further and made claims about the constitution that are implausible, that the constitution expressly recognizes the right of property in slaves, for example, and things mm -hmm. like that. Anti-slavery people came out of that convention uh, aware uh, that, in fact, the delegates had deliberately refused to uh, refer to slaves as property that they didn't want the Constitution to acknowledge a property right in man. So they start from there. Uh, and that is something that Sean Wilentz recently demonstrated in his book. Um, they, they also, as you pointed out, they read the preamble as, as promising the blessings of liberty mm -hmm. to everyone, not just blacks, not just whites, not just free, not just women or anything, just everyone. It was a universal... Proposition. The Fifth Amendment says no person can be deprived of their liberty without due process of law. That, so if you ask the question, uh, 
Did the Constitution empower Congress to ban slavery from the territories? I think the answer is yes. Did the Constitution empower Congress to deprive states of the ability to import slaves in the Atlantic slave trade? The answer is yes. Did the Constitution empower Congress to abolish slavery in Washington, D.C.? Yes. Did the Fugitive Slave Clause empower states and maybe even the federal government to protect the due process rights of accused fugitives? And the answer anti-slavery people gave was yes, and they had been doing so mm -hmm. since 1787. So why then, to get to your question, why then did it take so long? And the answer primarily, I think, lies in the balance of political power mm -hmm. that, that was so... Uh, that was to, to a large extent uh, uh, affected by that three-fifths clause, but not entirely. There are a number of reasons why the slave states uh, exercised disproportionate power in the federal government, but they did. And the moment an anti-slavery president was elected and a majority, uh, an anti-slavery majority took control of Congress, we had a civil war because they lost that control. And immediately you see an entirely different set of policies being adopted by the federal government, by Congress, by President Lincoln, you know, based on a very, very different understanding of what the Constitution allowed the federal government to do. Mm -hmm. And in fact, required the federal government to do. Mm -hmm. So, Well, I've always found uh, one of the genius strokes of, of Lincoln and what he offered was his... Um, view of the Constitution through the lens of the Declaration of Independence. Right. And, and certainly the Declaration held that all men are created equal. Obviously, right. that wasn't necessarily true for the founders, um, uh, all, at least not all of them, but he reoriented, reoriented our view of the Declaration and Constitution and how they work together. Um, and they go hand in hand. Um, and the Declaration, therefore, becomes really an aspiration. Um, and the yes. Constitution is maybe fixed at any given time, but the, the declaration was really the beacon that we strove to achieve. And I always think of the great Harry Jaffa who did so much to illuminate many views on that. How much did he, were you influenced by his work or how much did that uh, influence your book on this? Well, it was, it was one of the very first books I ever read on Lincoln uh, many years ago. You're talking about crisis in the house divided, yes, right? Correct. His study yeah. of the Lincoln Douglas debates. Um, and it wasn't so much the specific conclusions he came to as the the sophistication with mm -hmm. which he analyzed those debates and drew out a, an extraordinarily complex set of competing political visions of the world, mm -hmm. of the Constitution. So I've always had that in the back of my mind as, as, as sort of a baseline for understanding what was up in anti-slavery politics and what was up in anti in Lincoln's anti-slavery politics. Right, right, right. And it is absolutely true that Lincoln, and I think this was true of all anti-slavery politicians, believed that there was the text of the Constitution, which empowered Congress to do all those various things I mentioned, but that there was the spirit of the Constitution, which was, which was uh, explicated by the principle of fundamental human equality, right. uh, the Declaration of Independence. I think Lincoln once referred to, I get these backwards, the, the, the Declaration is a picture and the Constitution is the frame. Oh, right. Oh, oh. So he sees the two as, as inseparable from one another, although distinct from one another. Right, right. right. 
So, and that's, that's fairly common. That's fairly common. And in fact, it's quite widespread among anti-slavery politicians. And so it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's one of the things that, that I've said about Lincoln that what makes him so interesting to me as a historian, as opposed to, I suppose, a biographer, um, is that Lincoln was a brilliant expositor of anti-slavery thought of anti-slavery politics. He, he, he could explain the logic of anti-slavery politics better than anyone, right? But he was also completely unoriginal, right? Nothing he said about sure. the Constitution or about slavery was different from anything lots of other people were saying. That makes him a really good person to study mm -hmm. if you want to understand what's going on in the United States in the 1850s because, because he is so representative of this large body of uh, American voters and American politicians who mm -hmm. believed that you know, the destiny of the United States was for it to be an anti-slavery nation, a slave nation without slavery, and that it had been thrown off its course by this disproportionate power exercised by the slave states. Right. You've published quite a bit. Uh, what's your normal writing process for books? And then this one on Lincoln in particular. Oh, everyone is different. You know, <laughs> my first book was probably the, a, a kind of classic way of writing a book. I, I, I had to write a dissertation and I went off and I did a couple of years of research in the archives. I took mountains of notes. And then when I was ready to start writing, I took all the notes and I put them into separate piles and I, you know, arranged the piles in order and I sat and wrote from that. That's, that's kind of a classic way of writing a history book, but I don't think I ever wrote a book like that ever again, you know, uh, and I, I can't describe any particular way. <clears throat> I pick up, I, I, I wrote a book called Freedom National, and I, I pick it up and I read the pages and I think, how did I, how did I do this? How did I write this? In this case, this case was also unique in that, as I mentioned, I had written this essay that became the last chapter of the book. Mm -hmm. I had also published an essay on Lincoln and race that was included in a collection of essays that Eric Foner published some years back. Mm -hmm. And I had that. And I was working on an essay uh, presenting some new evidence on uh, Lincoln's anti-slavery policy in the first year of the war. But what I had now at the time was this vast store of information I had accumulated about the history of anti-slavery constitutionalism. Mm -hmm. So I was able to rewrite the essay on Lincoln and race and reframe the essay on Lincoln's first two years in office and his anti-slavery policy. Now, in such a way I, that I could put it in the context of this longstanding tradition of anti-slavery constitutionalism. So for example, I, I don't think in Freedom National, which is the big book I wrote on, anti, on the, on the anti-slavery origins of emancipation, I never made a reference as far as I know to something called the forfeiture of rights doctrine. Right? Mm -hmm. It's only when I started reading the longer history of anti-slavery constitutional thought that I realized that there was this well-developed body of thinking that said that if you secede from the union, you will forfeit whatever constitutional rights you have right. to slavery. And that primarily included, because all, 
all anti-slavery people acknowledged that the Constitution gave masters the right to recover their fugitive slaves. Well, you're going to forfeit that right. And abolitionists begin theorizing this in the 1830s. And Lincoln gave a speech in 1859 in which he explicitly said, look, you folks, you folks claim you're going to leave the union if a Republican is elected president because we won't return your slaves. What do you think is going to happen when you leave? And we're under no obligation to return them. Right. And then he repeats that in his inaugural address. He says, you know, you complain that we don't return your fugitive slaves. Well, you know, fugitive, that law is about as well enforced as a law can be when it violates the moral sense of the people. And in any case, what do you think you're going to get by seceding? Right. You know, then, then your fugitive slaves now only partially returned will not be returned at all. Right. And I, it's a very clear, unambiguous assertion that that if you secede from the union, we're going to stop returning your fugitive slaves, which is, of course, what we know they did right. within, you know, a month or two of the firing on Fort Sumter. Right. So I didn't know, I didn't know that when I wrote earlier books about Lincoln, I didn't have this background sure. of this doctrine, this constitutional doctrine that had been developed. And I was able to reframe a lot of what was going on and see the degree to which the language of forfeiture is, is suffuses the, the language of emancipation among anti-slavery politicians in the first two years of the war. Right. Lincoln is considered one of the best, if not the best American <clears throat> presidents. What do you think in your mind accounts for that greatness? Is, did the crisis of the Civil War amplify his great attributes or we still considered him one of the great presidents if the Civil War had not occurred? Oh, I, I can't answer the latter question. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> there were many, he had many virtues. Um, uh, he, you know, it, and there, there's nothing unique about what I'm about to say. He grew in office, right? He, he became a better commander in chief. Even the military historians will say that. Um, he became more and more committed to uh, racial equality than he had been before the war. Uh, uh, he, he was uh, tolerant of people who were not always loyal to him in a way that he didn't take political loyalty or political agreement to be, you know, a sign of, of uh, you know, something he should resent. He wasn't resentful about right. people who disagreed with him. And that made it, that, that made a difference, for example, when when Republicans uh, would complain that he was promoting Democrats as generals, mm -hmm. he would say, look, all, uh, I only care about whether they fight and whether they're good at being generals. And there are plenty of anti-slavery generals who are lousy when right. it comes to the battles. And there are plenty of Democrats who are first rate generals. And so, uh, you know, that's a very important attribute, the willingness to work alongside people who don't agree with your politics because they're competent at what they do. It, right. that's, that's no small thing, you know, and and to be willing to put up with prima donnas and, and like that if they're doing their job, if they're getting the job done. Right. But above all, above all, it was his. His commitment 
I mean, he's, you know, it's not just a commitment to saving the union, right? He's, it's, it's commitment to saving a particular kind of union, right? A union that didn't have slavery in it anymore, right? right. And, and he had to, he had to maintain a coalition that had a base of supporters for anti-slavery policies, but also conservative, ex-conservative Whigs uh, uh, who were in favor of supporting the union, but not particularly enthusiastic about emancipation, and war Democrats who were also in favor of uh, supporting the union and restoring the union, but were actively opposed many times to emancipation. And he managed to steer the emancipation policy through four years of war to its completion uh, while holding that coalition together. Right. And that's, that's uh, a remarkable achievement. Right. Well, you, you've alluded to uh, his growth in office um, and certainly his political and legal philosophy to, to, in a sense, uh, changed and evolved over time. I mean, as a young man, he was more of a Whiggish political figure, thinker, I should say. And then in the 1850s, he increasingly appealed to natural rights and then by the time of the Civil War, I feel like he adopts more religious language and religious imagery in a lot of his speeches. Um, wh- right. What do you see accounting for that growth? And, and to what degree do you think that influences his view of the Constitution, if at all? Well, I think, I, I think when the Whig Party fell apart and he had the natural home left for him to go to was this new anti-slavery Republican Party because he had always been anti-slavery. I just think we have to take him at his word that he right. he was always anti-slavery, couldn't remember a time when he wasn't anti-slavery, mm-hmm. grew up in an anti-slavery household, his parents attended an anti-slavery church. And, and so so we just can take that as a given. It's just that his he was never an anti-slavery politician. And as such the constitutional premises that were so important to anti-slavery politics were never important, no, were never an important part of his identity as a Whig politician, right? Mm-hmm. Once he commits himself in 1854 to anti-slavery politics as his organizing politics, as his main appeal as a politician he adopts this constitutional uh, this constitutional abolitionism if you will this Mm -hmm. this anti-slavery constitutionalism and it is so central to all discussions of slavery it's central just this morning i was reading uh I was reading a, a, f- a famous essay that Stephen Douglas published in Harper's Magazine in 1859 and that Lincoln used as a kind of <clears throat> text for, initi- for his speech at Cooper Union a few months later, right? And Douglas, too, goes on and on and on about how the Constitution that the founders drew up was based on the principle of popular sovereignty, which is what Douglas was saying. So everybody's making their arguments on the basis of their understanding what the Constitution is all about. And so as since that's that was the terms of debate uh, of slavery uh, among all politicians on every side, uh, uh, Lincoln naturally began to talk more and more about the Constitution and his own 
understanding of what the constitution was. So I'm not surprised that he, I, I'm not sure that, that that's growth so much it is the logical development sure. that comes with, with becoming an anti-slavery politician. I do think, I do think there is, uh, I, I don't know how to talk about this. He, as he, as he adopts and articulates the premises of anti-slavery constitutionalism and becomes an anti-slavery politician, his language becomes more and more infused with morality. Right? Mm -hmm. he, he, he talks about slavery as a social, political, and moral evil. And as he is drawn into that increasing language about the morality or the immorality of slavery, uh, it's, it's not inconceivable to me that that could have simultaneously diminished his earlier tendency as a young man to, to poke fun at religious figures and and uh, 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 so his his earlier skepticism about religion recedes. I don't think he ever became what we would think of as a full scale Christian, but I think he clearly did accept he was a deist at the very least, mm -hmm. and that that belief in God as a, a, a particular kind of belief becomes more important as the moral. Uh, crusade he embarked on becomes more important to him and also also i think as a way of coming to terms with the horror of the war itself with the bloodshed with the the cost of achieving the anti-slavery union that right. he wanted so it's you're absolutely correct that his language especially during the war becomes more and more suffused with religious imagery until you get that astonishing second inaugural address right one for the ages for sure right. we could turn briefly to um how some of lincoln's um approach to abolitionism and your own studies of that topic may inform some of the current controversies we see before us and many political and social commentators note that the division within american politics and social life is as great as ever um um I'm a little bit more bullish on Americans in our future, but do you believe we're as divided as we've ever been? Do you see um, things in our current um, political and, and, and social divisions that um, concern you based on your own studies of abolitionism in the Civil War? Well, I, it's hard for me to imagine a civil war mm -hmm. because uh, the divide in contemporary American politics is not so clearly unambiguously sectional there's no one section of the country that is going right. to secede from another section of the country right. so so that doesn't seem plausible uh, in that sense it's a fundamentally different situation from the one we were in in 1861 um, I, I don't know it's very hard to say certain things i think what happened what happened in the wake of the november 6th election is without precedent. No, I can't. I don't know of any other American president who lost re-election and proceeded to 
attempt to delegitimize right. that loss and encourage followers to participate in the delegitimation, even using violence, and and to press, put enormous direct pressure on state officials to to decertify a legitimate election. Right. Nothing like that has ever happened. But um, on the other hand, uh, you know, I, I, it, I, American politics has often been horrendously divided. Sure. You know, the, 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 there was, there was an awful lot of talk about the legitimacy of the 1800 election. You know, Andrew Jackson ran for election in 1828, claiming that the election four years earlier had been in some ways illegitimate. Mm -hmm. right? and, and the divisions in America in the 1830s, the number of mobs that were rampaging through the streets and attacking abolitionists and burning their meeting houses and things like that, 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 was, pretty, that was pretty rough, as were the politics of the Jim Crow South, you know, when, when you know, uh, the, the, there was a historian who described the post-war Southern Democratic Party as the paramilitary arm of the Ku Klux Klan, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it, it, you don't get much closer relationships between politics and violence as you got Right. In, in that period either. So I don't think the violence is unprecedented. I think it's been there all the time. And, right. uh, and it comes and it goes. And we're in a period of, of, you know, where people have been, people who are willing to use violence feel empowered to do so in a way that they haven't in right. the past. And that's, that's dangerous. And it's, but what's going to happen in the future, I can't tell. I can't tell right. whether or not if, if if President Biden is an extremely successful president and very popular and and can put that kind of opposition to rest, I think then we're fine. Right. And if if his if his opponents remain intransigent, then I don't know what can you know. Right. Unwilling to accept his legitimacy, you know. I have to say, it's, you know, the Democrats did not accept the legitimacy of George W. Bush's election in in two thousand, and they certainly did not accept the legitimacy of Trump's election. They spent years trying to prove that he had been elected thanks to Russian interference in the United States, and and so it's not new right. to to dispute the legitimacy of your opponent's victory. It's new for someone who has lost an election to actively dispute sure. the results. So. And maybe the volume and means in which to oppose it is certainly different. Yeah. Yeah. But you're yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, if to bring it back to Lincoln, it, it's hard to imagine anything more different from Lincoln. Who? That's who, very, yes. That, uh, who, always accepted the legitimacy of his opponents and, and recognized, I mean, he didn't accept the legitimacy of secession, but political opposition, yeah, he, he, right. he knew, you know, he had no trouble. It never even occurred to him to postpone the election of 1864 on the grounds that the United States was in the middle of a horrendous, gigantic civil war. Right. And 
he, he you know, it, it wouldn't have occurred to him. To, he was thinking in August of 1864 that he was going to lose and imagining what he would have to do when he lost, but he wasn't imagining <laughs> right. disputing the loss, you know? Right. So, well, um, Jim, I, I really appreciate you uh, joining us for the podcast. One of the things we, we like to uh, ask our guests near the end of it um, um, is what's one of your favorite Lincoln stories or anecdotes? And I wonder if you have any you'd like to Oh, wow. I just did this morning. I was talking about some, uh, it's uh, that some friends of our, of mine were on a, on an email list. We're talking about Lincoln and I quoted, uh, I quoted a speech he gave in Connecticut when he made the tour of New England after the Cooper Union address. And uh, he went to a town where there was a strike, a big strike of shoemakers, in which he said, uh, uh, all I know is there is a strike, that they're on strike. And all I can say is that I'm glad I live in a country where a worker is allowed to strike if he wants to. And I thought that's, that's, <laughs> right. <laughs> that's great. That's that is good great. for him. That really is. That's yeah. good for him. It's not the kind of thing you usually hear said about Lincoln. It's not. It's not a typical Lincoln anecdote. Sure. So right. Not, no, that it is surprised my friends. So, well, I it's like obvious it. he was thinking about slavery, right? And you know, right. slaves can't strike, but but right. still, you know, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. I like that you went with a unique anecdote because I think it's um very indicative of your book too. It's it comes at things from a unique angle. Um, and, and you're, uh, I think, analyzing and addressing and writing about something that, to your point, as you said at the beginning of the uh, podcast here, um, it hasn't been um, explored quite to the degree that so much of uh, the rest of Lincoln's life and philosophy has. So um, right. I really appreciate your addition to the uh, body of Lincoln scholarship here. And I, I expect over the rest of the course of the year, you'll continue to get many accolades and awards for this book and, and rightly so. I do confess I'm only about 30 to 40% through, through it. So um, I still need to finish it, but I can tell you- You haven't even gotten to the Lincoln part yet. <laughs> from, from, the, from the part that I've um, read and skimmed, it's, it's quite well done. Your writing is, is excellent. Um, and um, you obviously have the track record to back it up too. So I'm, I'm sure you've got many, many great accolades coming your way. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a yeah, pleasure. It. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Lincoln Log. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show.